Hello, and welcome to another episode of the Project Purple podcast. I'm Dino Varelli, founder and CEO of Project Purple. And today we're on the phone with a new friend of ours, Frank Roche. Frank, how are you doing? Doing great, Dino. Really glad to be on your program. It's uh, it's really impressive and the, the amount of work that you do and the number of shows that you produce. So thank you so much for that. Well, Frank, no, thank you. Um, for our listeners at home, Frank and I connected via social media. And I, I've said this on one of the previous podcasts. Um, you know, it's, it's pretty amazing how social media, at least for us here at Project Purple, has been able to connect with folks throughout the world, believe it or not. And it's pretty special to see. And I think a lot of times, Frank, when we begin these journeys or these odysseys with this disease, people can feel very alone. And it's just awesome to connect with people and, and have somewhat of a, a kinship really quick because we kind of understand we're, we're in that space. And so I, I appreciate you coming on the podcast and also appreciate we're going to talk a little bit about what you're doing uh, in a minute here. Uh, appreciate all that you're doing on social media as well. But it's just so, so fascinating to me, the power of social media. I, I'd have to say, looking back, probably three quarters of the guests that we've had have all been due to social media. So the power of social media in a good way. Frank, what we always do, uh, we give our guests an opportunity to share their story. We've got a pretty vast audience and some people may not know the name Frank Roche or the adventures of the pan can man, which we'll talk about it. I am, I'm going to bring something up and I've been listening to your podcast, which we're going to get into. And I listened to one yesterday while I was running and I was going to call you cranky Frankie. Cause I think that's what your wife <laughs> Has nicknamed you, but I, but I didn't want to disrespect you right away. No, so. you are more than welcome to call me Cranky Frankie. That's good. So Cranky Frankie, let's get into your backstory. And as I always tell our guests, you can go as far back or as high level as you want, and then we'll take it from there. Well, Dino, let me uh, let me you know advocate for what you say about the power of social media. So. I have worked in media the majority of my career. I started out in polymer physics, which is a science-based thing, and then uh, for making uh, plastics for medical devices, and then transitioned into journalism, and then eventually into uh, organizational communication consulting. So that's the you know my background, my academic background, um, a master's degree in journalism and mass communication, and um, I've spent the majority of my work career. Um, I owned an agency for a while. I worked for a couple of really big consulting firms and have done um, media consulting, communication and behavioral communication. That is using communication to um, drive change, to get people to, that's, that's both developing messaging and using various mediums to get messaging out. So that's a large part of that is just the storytelling that goes behind that. So this is why I like so much about your podcast, that you're giving lots of different voices you've uh, you know you've put those out there that sort of thing um i have a you know being in that business that i'm in i have kind of a panoply of you know mediums at my disposal one of which of course is podcasting and as you know like in um in adult learning there's there's three different styles that people you know take up information there's you know visual some people are visual learners about a third of people are visual learners a third are auditory learners and a third are kinesthetic learners that means they have to see things move that sort of thing so 
um, you know, we try in, in, in various kind of mediums. And, you know, one of the things that you and I, when we were just having our, our early talk before we got started here, talking about, you know, creating visuals for a vlog, that would get at a slightly different audience. Uh, you know, that would get at people who want to see things moving, that sort of thing. Not everybody just, um, you know, learns through hearing. I happen to do it. I love podcasts for that reason. I, I you know, I listen to the radio, I listen to music. Um, but it's it's one of those things um, that, you know, giving people different uh, opportunities to access the content is is a really good thing. So I'm just advocating for what you were saying about uh, a visual medium as well. Um, it, it really works. Some people just, um, you know, the visual learning uh, are just readers. You know, there's some people that the best students in in school are typically visual learners because school is is built on visual learning. So, you know, the, the really good readers starting in third grade and moving on are always the ones who are sitting in the front of the class, putting their hand up, doing that sort of thing. So anyway, my, that's why my background is in both in the, in the behavioral communication work, which is uh, both messaging and, and medium, and then in marketing. Um, so I've, I've spent a, a fair amount of time um, working on, you know, what, makes message uptake work. And so that's what I've done. That's what I've done as work. Uh, I have a family of three sons, uh, a wife um, who's been taking care of me as I've been a little ill. And uh, she's a teacher. Uh, she's actually an engineer and an MBA and a, a teacher, math teacher. Um, and uh, we've we raised three boys who are grown men now and uh, all standing on their own two feet and doing really great. So that's a uh, that's what a, a lifetime of 60 years compressed into two minutes looks like. <laughs> so I, I've got a question there for what you just said. What sure. made you go from physics to journalism and then into marketing? Because that's quite a shift. I mean, I know we've, we have some doctors that we've interviewed that I know they've started out as like bench scientists and then they've yep. gone into clinics to deal with patients. And now I think not for everyone, but that kind of has been somewhat of a, a popular trend lately where you have clinicians that deal with patients that also have, you know, a lab um, and have that background of doing the research. So, yeah, there's a, it's, it's an interesting, I mean, I don't know. It's, it was interesting for me. I, uh, I've always been a writer my whole life. I mean, long before I ever studied any sciences, I had always been a writer. Um, I had, you know, everything from letter writing. My grandma and I used to write to each other once a week, back and forth. I used to send her postcards. She'd send me letters, so on and so forth. Um, but I'd always been, you know, writing both fiction and nonfiction. And so there was a kind of a logical transition. I must say that having studied, you know, hard science to begin with and moving over from journalism was kind of like moving from you know, the most high paid profession back in those days to the lowest paid. <laughs> so it was, a, it was a, but it was one of those, it, it actually worked out great. Um, I was more interested in the writing and the, the messaging. And honestly, I wanted to get my arms out of benzene. So back in those mm -hmm. days, um, when you work in polymer physics, you're washing glassware, benzene, all of these mutagens, right? THF, uh, um, you know, toluene, benzene, all of these kinds of things. And I knew even back then, we used to always kind of joke about it and say, geez, I hope that these mutagens that are absorbing through our skin aren't going to give us some disease later on, hmm. <laughs> which is, 
So having a, a with, foresight. You sit with pancreatic cancer. Yeah. I don't, I, it did not cause it. I am not no. in any way, shape, or form saying that. We used to just joke about it back yeah. then, though. And I was thinking for my own health that um, while I was still a young man, that I wanted to get out of, you know, out of the lab and, you know, among people a little bit more, honestly. Fascinating. But I would, you know, I had done pretty well. I, I was a senior principal engineer by the time I was 26, which is the highest engineering level you could be in. A, it was a company of 150,000 people. It was pretty good. So I had done pretty well. Um, it was just a matter of I wanted to do something different, and I'm glad I chose that path. Awesome. I, I just love hearing, though, how people take paths, right? Because there's always, every day we have choices, right? There's choices every day that we make that impact our lives. And it's just fascinating to me to hear the paths that people take and how they start. And then eventually they they end up on this path and the success that they, you know, clearly hindsight's always twenty twenty, but you can look back and look at that. Just so fascinating to me and so super I always cool. try to give advice to young people and try and mentor as many as I can, but sort of say like, I, I'm not saying I laugh about it, but I sort of think like, you know, if you, if you know, if you think that you know what the path of your life is going to look like, it's almost comical, right? When you're yeah. studying something and you sort of think like, do you really think that you're just going to do this one thing and then forever you're just going to go on one trajectory? Hardly. You know, the different forces make us change. I wouldn't change not a thing that anything that I've done because I've gotten to this moment. But it's, it's kind of, um, you know, if you're sort of open to new experiences and, you know, have a little bit of talent, who knows? World's your oyster. You can do whatever you want. So It's, it's the land of opportunity, right? I mean, it's what you it is indeed. It. it is indeed. So you go through life, physics, into journalism, into marketing, family, wife, life is good, and then things change a bit, Frank. They do. Um, you know, I've been a, I've been a very lucky, healthy guy my whole life. Uh, I am not a marathon runner or any variation on what you do. So <laughs> kudos to you, dude. So it's, that's never been my, that's never been my gig, but I have been, uh, I've just been one of those. I've never took any medication, not my whole life. i never really was sick. I mean, I get a cold every couple of years, you know, which for men is like, you know, getting pancreatic cancer, yeah. you know, it's, it's like, yeah. the man cold, you know, the man cold. I get yeah. a man cold and I, you know, I think I was dying, but no, I, I just, for some weird reason for 59 years, I got nothing. I'd go get my, you know, I'd get my annual uh, physical and everything. It'd just be fine. And you know, every, everything, blood pressure, so on and so forth. And then I went, you know, it, talk about points of discontinuity. I go from completely healthy to darn sick in a pretty quick, short period of time. I, you know, I, I uh, all of a sudden um, started this February of last year, but uh, 2019, um, I had just got my physical and everything was like really cool. Like all the, everything checks out, everything looks really good. And then right away, I had started feeling, I mean, like, it just it has nothing to do with my physical, just the timing. I started kind of feeling punky. And I thought, like, oh, I must have gotten something. And I, you know, eaten something wrong, or you know, my stomach started getting really cramped and started feeling terrible. Like I, I mean, not it was it was kind of progressing and progressing, and I just kept denying it, sort of thinking, like, ah, whatever, I'm never sick, nothing ever goes wrong. But um Eventually, uh, 
I started peeing root beer. And that's when at some point I, you know, called my, I, after I peed one time, I called my wife and I said, could you take a look at this? And mm. she says, you, you got to go get checked out. Like now, like this second, I had been putting it off. Like I let it go for about three weeks. I had a bile duct block and it was because of the tumor. And mm. so, I mean, that's the short answer to the whole thing, which is I denied that anything was going wrong. I was kind of like, ah, whatever. You know, my back is killing me. My stomach is feeling really full of spasms. I'm my urine is really darker, darker, darker. I'm sorry about it if there's too much specifics here. No, no, I, we, okay. we appreciate honesty. And I think that's one thing that, uh, you know, on our show that we've tried to do, because I think this is important, Frank, because I think, and I've said this before, yeah. this is not a glamour cancer. So the things that pancreatic cancer does, I think need to be talked about more, you know, in terms okay. of pain, discomfort, you know, pee turning brown, which like, that's, that's a big issue. Or like people have digestive issues. Like, you know, we had someone on the podcast, the guy had diarrhea nonstop for two weeks. Oh, yeah. You know, it's not like something that, Hey, you go to work. Hey, I, you know, I got, I got diarrhea. I gotta be in the bathroom, you know, yeah. the whole day, you know, that's yeah. not something we talk about often. Right. Like it's not uh, sure what you go to Starbucks and talk to your buddies about. Right. No, no. But I mean, it's, a, it's the sort of the honesty of it. And so, you know, in my case, the um, my stomach was, I didn't have diarrhea, but I had really painful stomach. Like my, I was like, almost like my stomach was spasming and huh. that, that started like the squeeze on my intestines. And, you know, I felt like I had to, you know, go to the bathroom a lot, but I didn't actually have to go. So I didn't, I, but the urine was just getting darker and darker, and darker. Of course, what you said about hindsight being 2020 um, you know, when I look back on it, yes, all the things were going wrong. My skin was super itchy. Um, I, my eyes were yellow. Um, and by the time I finally asked my wife to come and look, um, she looked at me and she was like, you know, dude, there's something wrong here. And, you know, and then of course I look at my body and I'm, you know, orange huh. <laughs> and I'm feeling pretty sick. I, you know, I would, by that time I was feeling like legitimately sick. I was just kind of, you know, I mean, these things happen. I, you know, I was in denial about it. I just, I didn't, I, I obviously didn't know it was my pancreas. I just thought, ah, this will go away. Like as in everything else for the first 59 years of my life, everything, whatever I got just went away. And so I ne never had any health problem whatsoever. And I thought this was going to go away too. And it clearly it didn't. So. That's why, you know, you and I are talking, you're back in the nutmeg state. I'm here in Rochester, Minnesota at Mayo Clinic. So, so I would just want to go back. I have one more question on this. So up until February, 2019, and you said you went in for the physical. So, I mean, again, hindsight's always 2020. Did this just happen within like a series of weeks, months? Like what's the time frame for our audience? You know, how long we, was this happening? And it, did, was it something that I guess, you know, you can look back and say, well, yeah, I was, my pee was a little dark, like a couple times back in September, but it didn't really notice it until February. I, so this is my, I tried to sort of reconstruct the crime scene on yeah. this. I don't think that, um, my urine was getting darker until say like after the physical, like, I mean, I, you know what, to tell you the honest truth, and this is kind of, you know, part of your show is the education of this. Yeah. 
I, what I would say is this, if I were going to give people advice now, notice sooner. So you asked a good question. Was it, was my urine darker in September? I don't know because, you know, really quite honestly, maybe I just go and don't look. Yeah. Most people don't look. I don't look, whatever. And so, but by the time it turned into root beer, I knew. Yeah. Um, because by that time it also kind of burned and like, it was just all bad. Right. Like, so, but I will tell you that I noticed it getting darker and darker and darker. And I kept thinking like, nah, nah. And I, I didn't, I was ignorant about this. I didn't even go read about it, which I should, which is kind of against my nature. I tend to like to be informed about things. Yeah, and I was just going to say I, that. <laughs> yeah, I I, um, I sort of pride myself on knowledge about, you know, I, items. I just, I was really in that, eh, you know, this is just nothing. And um, it was something. It was, it was legitimately something. So I would say it was over a course of weeks that I went from um, being okay. And then, um, you know, three, four weeks later, I'm in a world of trouble. You know, I, I am really fully jaundiced and, um, you know, my health is suffering at this point. It's bad. So, um, and then a sequence of events obviously happened really quickly. I went to back to my primary care physician. Um, she took one look at me and said, okay, man, like, uh, we're, you know, we're going to get you a whole series of blood tests. You know, I, I got those before I went to see her, mm-hmm. but then, uh, when I saw her, then she sent me for, uh, an ultrasound, on my abdomen immediately and then sent me to a gastroenterologist and uh, you know where i went and denied this whole thing for you know let's say four weeks all of a sudden now a series of events happens really rapidly it happens like you know i go from uh, ultrasound to getting a contrast ct scan and mri um and then of course the gastro- gastroenterologist on a friday um, asks us to come in and they're going to tell us the news. I already knew, by the way, when I got the CT scan, um, I could tell from the radiologist what happened. I already knew. So um, she didn't tell me, but you can, you can tell, like when you have something that's pretty pernicious, um, you can tell from the reaction of the person who's there. So I sort of already knew. And then, uh, you know, on Friday and by Monday, I was already then, uh, getting so this all went from like a wednesday to a friday and by monday i was in getting um a, uh, uh ercp which is uh you know the probe that yep. put down and to Needle put biopsy. a, a bil- oh, take a biopsy stent. both 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 so take a biopsy and then you know place a biliary stent yeah. yep 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 so that was uh um you know that was the first part of the process and that the really good part of that was a uh, really good gastroenterologist and um, the, so the jaundice resolved like immediately by the time I woke up, I would say it was only within a few hours. I was, go- you know, I'd gone from, um, you know, root beer now to, you know, clear. It was, it was really, I was really um, pleased about that part of the outcome. And by the way, that was the best I felt. So, you know, that was the, I should have known, I should have marked down those days. It's like, like, 
hey, this is a day that I feel really good because I am now not going to feel very good from here on out. So. Hindsight, of course, <laughs> being twenty twenty on that one, right? I mean, if you exactly, if not, right. I don't think there's a book, and you know, unless you you deal with or you know, and and this is another. I mean, I guess they give a plug for our podcast. You know, for people listening that, you know, maybe in those initial stages. I mean, I think that's a powerful message, Frank, to share. Like. You know, knowing when those good days are and, and, you know, knowing what's coming ahead are those tough, difficult days. But again, hindsight's they, always twenty twenty, right? They, they, uh, it's, it's one of those that if, you know, if you could bottle those up and sort of say, wow, um, that was a day where I went from being pretty sick and really jaundiced and that, and uh, I get a biliary stent and I'm like a new man. Like yeah. now my bile is, my bile is flowing oh, yeah. and, you know. Not knowing what was ahead of me, but at that point, I should have bottled that day up in amber and just said, like, okay, that was a good day. I feel pretty good. Um, and, you know, go from there. But of course, you know, as in any of these kinds of sequences, then I had, I went and got, uh, I got a, uh, the initial scraping of my tumor, which was occluding my bile duct. And mm-hmm. So, my, so my, I have a, I have a pancreatic tumor that is in the head of my pancreas yeah. and it occluded my bile duct. And so, um, that the first pass of the, of the scraping from the ERCP, uh, was came back, not a false negative. It just was inconclusive. And so then, uh, I went to get an EUS, which is a, um, uh, ultrasound. Yep. So, so this is endoscopic ultrasound. Basically they put a fluoroscope down and uh, snake that thing in through there and did the uh, fluoroscopic and then got the scraping. And of course then confirmed, yes, that this is in fact, uh, you know, adenocarcinoma and you have, uh, you know, this is it. Here's, and we got the an early staging um, from that as well. So that we could see, you know, where, um, where it was, you know, how big it was, well, at least initially how big it was. And then, uh, and then a whole series of events started happening after that. (laughs) So so I want to just, uh, pause here for a second. So you went from, you know, being relatively healthy to let's say four or five weeks of intense pain, cramping, realizing something wasn't right. And then quickly were diagnosed and then went into a, a series of events of, you know, as you mentioned, relief momentarily with the stent and then some more diagnostic testing. All told that it sounds like, Frank, that was done in a pretty short period of time. If I were to compare you to maybe some other patients and survivors that we've had on the podcast where, you know, initially they have these symptoms, they get misdiagnosed or they get re-diagnosed with something else. Sure. And then they don't have an official diagnosis sometimes for potentially a couple months. And then they eventually, then they kind of jump right into treatment. But from your standpoint, it was, it seems like, correct me if I'm wrong. It was, it was a pretty quick turnaround, I guess. Very, very quick. I will. And this is, uh, I, I, at, at the risk of sounding like I'm, you know, bragging on myself, I am a very good patient advocate. In other words, I'm quite, knowledgeable about what was going on. By the time I realized what was going on, I read every academic paper. I read journals. I read everything from, you know, wiki articles to, uh, you know, journal of, uh, you know, uh, New England Journal of Medicine. And so I was really aware of what was going on and I'm pretty conversant. And my wife is even more so she's a biomedical engineer, uh-huh. um, at one time and is, um, 
really aware of what's what that is. And so um, we both, you know, are pretty good patient advocates and can have some pretty frank discussions with the doctors about what needs to happen and when, how it needs to happen, like any split. So yeah, I was, I went from, you know, to your point, getting relief and then having the EUS and that all happened within a week. I mean, it was a really quick, I, I feel really lucky about that, that I was, um, you know, diagnosed, got the biliary stent. So I got the bile relief from the jaundice and got the EUS and that, you know, that positive confirmation. And then that sets in, you know, that sets in motion another whole set of things that have to happen after that. But that right. was the, you know, the first part of the, the, the scheme there. So, Which sometimes can be the, the, the most daunting, right? Because I find people get the diagnosis and it becomes uh, paralysis in some ways, right? And you could almost, very easily it, be. It could be, yeah, for, you know, and you just kind of go into this fog. At least I know. Well, for, I think that two, two things to your point. One is paralysis. The other is moving too quickly. Yeah. Dangerously just giving in to whatever the next person tells you to do. Yeah. Uh, so that I, I, I'm not saying, I mean, listen, I, I, you know, I, I respect medical opinions that, but I do think that there's a real value. And, you know, one of the things that my gastroenterologist told me is, listen, you need to go get multiple opinions. Yeah. You know, doctors will expect this, go get them. Uh, and so, you know, I, I, I took that as a little bit of permission as well. Right. So that was, uh, um, but I was going to do that anyway, but I was, it was nice well, yeah, that's to say. I, I, I think <laughs> in, in knowing you now and hearing you speak and listening to your podcast, I, I, I feel like you would have done that anyways. So on that note, and I have a note here and you've mentioned it a couple of times, knowledge. And I know from listening to the podcast and I want to kind of maybe not jump that fast forward to it, but you mentioned before you're in Rochester, so what are some of the things at that point then that you decided, I know you mentioned you, you read the medical journals, you, you, you know, your wife's versed in the biomedical field. What was kind of the process at that point? Did you interview people or did you know from your research and your reading, like, hey, this is where we're going to go? Yeah, uh, maybe more of the latter. So I, um, what I did was I first started looking at how various you know, class A facilities that could take care of pancreatic cancer. And I, I don't want to name any of them, but I would just say that you know, all the usual, <laughs> uh, you, know, you know, all the usual suspects, right? Yeah. There's, you know, um, you know, I mean, it, it's, it's no, um, it, it's no mystery that the Whipple procedure was developed at Johns Hopkins university. Right. That's not that far from my house. Right. I mean, yeah. it's close enough that I could drive there. Um, there's, you know, I happen to live because I live in Connecticut. I have, many, many options on the East Coast. And I looked at all of the Class A hospitals in the United States and a few outside of the United States to try and discern how they talk about pancreatic cancer, the protocol that they use, the, um, you know, everything from patient outcomes, how they present their data, you know, the, um, uh, you know, pancreatic cancer surgery is a, you know, let's be honest, it's pretty risky mm -hmm. and it, it's, um, you know, it, were they presenting data that so, sort of showed, um, you know, a number of people that have both, you know, there, there's, you know, patient death during the surgery and there's also the morbidity afterwards. And how are they presenting that data? What were their, you know, what were their statistics? 
what were they saying about it? What were they doing? What were they? What were the leading doctors saying in published um, studies? Um, so I, I was trying to synthesize all that information, um, and I had a psychological bent toward Mayo. Honestly, I met Mayo. I've got my treatment at Mayo, and there's a reason for this. My father-in-law years ago had gotten a pernicious leukemia, and um, Hit, had been told at a sort of local hospital that like basically that was it like he wasn't going to make it mm-hmm. and go ahead and tell your family which he did and then um at the last minute he, in mayo and scottsdale was able to take him on do a bit of a i'm not saying it was experimental but at the time this is years and years ago now but they took him in um harvested t-cells stripped his immune system down to zero over the course of seven weeks re-injected him and the guy who was, you know, supposed to pass away months ago, all of a sudden gets up like Lazarus and he, there he is and he lives another 10 years. So I had this like psychological view mm-hmm. that like, you know, of the power of both the science and kind of the psychology of hope, like the idea that like, well, you know, Hey, maybe it can work out. So I was predisposed, but of course, you know, can I say doctor's names on the show? Absolutely. Dino, and, and if you don't, I know your doctor, so I'll say his name. <laughs> I'll okay, lead you to great. Okay. <laughs> okay. So, so, uh, you know, all of this led me to Dr. Mark Trudy, who is, you know, um, I, you know, all of my research, all of the, all of the things. And so, um, you know, oddly, uh, you know, I, I took a, not a conventional path to get to him. Yeah. But, um, you know, I'm here. I used all of my journalism skills to do this, but I, you know, I, I wrote the most persuasive letter I could write, you know, I synthesized all the information and, uh, lucky for me, I was able to be taken on by him to, um, you know, to do my now diagnostic assessment and then begin the treatment protocol. But, you know, in, in my case, and I'm just telling about my case, I'm not saying that I'm not saying this is right for anybody else. I'm just saying that I believe in the, this protocol of neoadjuvant treatment and then surgery. Um, and I just, it's just, for me, that's, that's, uh, one. And there's, there's, there's documentation to prove this out as well. So it's not just, uh, you know, a pig in a poke here. This is the, there's data, um, you know, cause you know, we, we know that one of the bad things about pancreatic cancer is it's likelihood to metastasize is very, very high. And so, you know, there is, there are some, some things about, you know, surgery first and then adjuvant train, you know, look, people survive any which way. So yeah. there's any numbers of kind of miraculous recoveries. I'm just saying for myself, that was my choice. And that's, I like Dr. Trudy's approach. I liked um, everything about it. I like being the chance to be able to, um, you know, I always said that if anything ever bad happened, I used to call it, if anything jumped off the tracks that I would go to Mayo and that's what happened. So there, there I was. And off I trundled to, uh, off, off I trundled to Mayo clinic, actually we just flew there and, um, and started the the process, you know, well, cut scans, CT, all that stuff. So what you're saying is so powerful, Frank, because there's two points here that I want to make that just reiterate what you just said is one, getting a second opinion and not running out. I think you mentioned early, like 
I think the, the and I hate when I hear this, like we, we, I had someone call recently and, you know, they called for a referral, um, which we do on, on, on occasion. Sure. And then they said, I said, okay, well, how does next week look? And they're like, well, we're getting the port put in on Friday and then we're going for chemo th- chemotherapy on Monday. And I'm like, well, okay. Um, you know, you can slow down. And we've had physicians on surgeons and oncologists and they've all said like, they advocate, get a second opinion. Uh, and these are surgeons and physicians from some of the top centers in the world there's nothing wrong with seeking a, a second opinion, you know, within a month, you know, should you wait six months? No. Uh, but you know, you can still begin some, you know, you can get a port, you know, ports are, and, and, and we'll, we might talk about your situation with your port. I know you had some complications <laughs> on one of your podcasts, you talked about it, but you know, you ports are pretty standard. You can get that put in at most major centers and, uh, and even some regional centers do, they, they, I'm sure they do a great job of putting those in. Um, but to actually come up with a treatment plan and, and decide on you know where you're going to get treatment or what type of treatment you're going to have, it's so critical to to kind of seek out a second opinion or talk to other people. And I think that's one thing with the disease that everyone feels. I've got to start treatment today. Um, you know, if I don't get treatment today, and and I think part to blame is these physicians and clinicians. This is a business. It's a big business, right? Of curing cancer and treating cancer. And, yep. you know, people come in the door and they've got insurance or they're going to find a means to pay for that that treatment. These treatments are not cheap by any means. Um, I remember the bills that my dad incurred, you know, through and we were fortunate he had insurance and he had secondary insurance and we had some savings that we had to, you know, put towards his care. But, you know, I think the key here is you got to maybe pump the brakes a bit and do your research. And, you know, getting a second opinion is not a bad thing. And then the the other thing that I, I think you mentioned too was, you know, f- feeling comfortable with who you're going to get care from is so critical. I think, I can't tell you how many times people have said, well, you know, the doctor's a real jerk. And I'm like, well, why do you go to the doctor? Yeah, exactly. You know, if you don't feel comfortable, you know, going there, but you, you kind of, yeah, okay, he's at a, a major institution, but the guy's a real ass. Like, I, I can't tell you how many times I hear that, or like the doctor doesn't have a very good bedside manner, but he's at XYZ and that XYZ has a great reputation. Well, you know what? Go somewhere else. It just, yeah. It's just fascinating to me. Um, you mentioned Dr. Trudy, and, and I'm sure you know this, but uh, our audience listening at home, we've had a couple people on our podcast that have been patients of Dr. Trudy, and one that comes to my mind is John McGee. John lives in the, the Twin Cities area, and I might try to connect you with John after the podcast. And right. he was a patient of Dr. Trudy and had a similar experience uh, that you're mentioning. And he mentioned that Dr. Trudy, when he went in and interviewed him, he said, why do, you, why do you do pancreatic cancer? And he lost his dad, I believe. Right. So that's why he's yeah. a pancreatic yeah. cancer surgeon. So he's a phenomenal doctor and, and he's doing amazing things. So you're in good hands. I, I feel really lucky to be with him. And, you know, getting back to what you say, though, about sort of the insurance and that, um, you know, the the money is in the surgery, right? Like the, oh, yeah. the money and any of these kinds of things. And so, the RVUs, you know, more likely, pardon me? I think surgeons, so I don't know how many people know about this, but 
every procedure there's an RVU I think is it's a, it's like a credit that the uh, and that's the way the insurance billing works so yes. the larger the RVU the more the insurance will pay and clearly with a Whipple or you know anything to do with the pancreas is very complex it takes a lot of time there's a lot of people that are involved so it's a big money maker it's a big money maker and it's it's more likely in some places to want to get to surgery first. I mean, I get it, by the way, I get it for people too, because I remember that feeling like as I was spending a few weeks, you know, getting out to, out to Mayo and, you know, trying to just get all the, all of the pieces in order, I was sort of sitting there thinking, is that thing growing? Like, is that, that sucker, what Dr. Trudy calls the dragon, right? Slaying the dragon is the, is that dragon growing inside of me? And, you know, you kind of, I get the anxiousness to get, want to get it cut out. It's completely side story, but I will tell you, I, I've talked to a lot of people while I'm here. I'm here for six weeks for radiation. And I talked to a guy the other day, it has nothing to do with pancreatic cancer, but it has to do with making too rapid a decision. He got somehow at some local hospital and unnamed somewhere in the mid, middle part of the United States, he had a, he had what they thought was pain, uh, prostate cancer. They take his prostate out. You know, that's a pretty serious operation, yeah. right? Yeah. And there's all kinds of other things that happen when you take someone's prostate out. Guess what they end up finding out? It wasn't the prostate. It was the lymph nodes. He's now he's now getting radiation. It was the lymph nodes around his prostate. It wasn't his prostate, but he went to like some sort of, not even to a hospital, but like some center that did this, that like took his prostate out. And he, he made this kind of like he just went along with the with the tide and let the tide wash him into a surgery that well, has some pretty serious side effects and um, wasn't the thing. And now that's a mistake. That's a medical mistake. But it's also kind of like, man, alive, dude, like if you had just paused and he said, that's what he told me, if he had sort of worked backwards, he'd still have his prostate and he would have come to Mayo in the first place. Right. So. And I'm not saying Mayo and only Mayo. I don't mean no. to be that. I'm just saying that there is a there's a process and get the best medical help that you can get. The the lucky part that I will say for me, and I have to just acknowledge this to your audience and to anybody that I talk to, I am fortunate that I have two things. One, I have extraordinary healthcare insurance. Um, my wife's a teacher. And uh, that healthcare insurance is paying a lot of money for me to get these treatments. And it, uh, the plan that I have allows me to go to here, go here. I used three different hospital systems while I was, A, getting initial diagnosis for my primary care, a different hospital system, completely different set of physicians for the ERCP, and now another hospital system, Mayo for another part of the treatment. And by the way, I used a fourth hospital system uh, when I got treatment in Hartford. And when I got it in Avon, but uh, Connecticut, but I, I got my chemo treatment there. So I use, I have a medical plan. Second, um, I fortunately, and I mean, this is just pure fortune that I have enough resources to be able to fly back and forth between Connecticut and Rochester, Minnesota or drive or whatever. And, you know, it's an expensive proposition to, you know, stay in hotels and, you know, fly and, and so on and so forth. And I realized the fortune of that for me, you know, some people, if you live in a remote place, you might not be able to do the same thing. Um, you know, and we know 
you know, there's, there's a, there's an entire, I'm sure you could do a hundred shows on medical bankruptcies and, you know, the kinds of things that displace people or decisions that people might make because they don't have, you know, they can't meet their deductible and, you know, all that kind of stuff. So I've been, I, I just want to acknowledge my good luck that has to do with, you know, having the financial wherewithal to be able to do this as well. It makes a difference. Well, I would say, you know, luck, there's probably not a thing called luck, Frank, but I think you and your wife have planned accordingly, right? And I mean, no one ever plans to get sick as well, but I think, you know, uh, I appreciate your honesty in that. And I think I, I do agree with you that a lot of people don't have, I, I think the, the country is a great place. Like we live in New England. It's a great place to yeah. get sick because we're stuck in yeah. between Boston and New York. There's some great centers, exactly. worldwide centers. Yep. Connecticut has some great centers as well for they other do. folks in the country. You know, we do a lot of work in Nebraska, the Western part of Nebraska, you know, you're eight hours to a major medical center. Um, yeah. I was just in New Mexico. You know, if you're down on the border, you know, you're not too close to any major medical center. So, you know, there are parts of the country, but I, I think the one thing I would say, there are groups out there and clearly that will support and not be able to provide 100% assistance. Uh, but the key is, I think what you said in the beginning is, you know, there are some centers and in particular for this disease, and you realized very quickly that there's only a handful of centers that do this really, really good. And I think you advocate that to a lot of people um, and all the people who call in to really get to one of these high volume centers. Just like you gave the example with the guy with the prostate, you know, to pause, but also to be at a center where you're going to get quality care. And I, I think that's something that, you know, I look back at my own personal experience and growing up in Connecticut, my parents really were reluctant to go to a high volume center because they felt very comfortable going to the local hospital. Sure. You know, and so I think that's something that uh, that should be really important here message that, you know, that there are a handful of centers there are enough of them throughout the country and there's more that are being created that are really doing some cutting edge stuff. And on that, I, I kind of want to bring us back here. So you, you get through the treatment or you get through the, the process of realizing you have the disease, you go through the knowledge base of realizing like, hey, I want to be at Mayo. You connect with Trudy and then you guys come up with a treatment plan to do yes. therapy before you're going to do surgery. You're still in that kind of mix now. You haven't had surgery yet. But so nope. but you you struggled a lot with the chemotherapy. A ton. Yeah, so I'm following Dr. Trudy's protocol and so what happened was I came out here to uh, Rochester and we went through, you know, a battery of tests, PET scan just to see if there was any, you know, uh, metastases. Mm -hmm. Dr. Trudy did a um, uh, laparoscopic uh, examination of my abdomen. Um, you know, that was a couple hour uh, surgery to look around and make sure that there weren't any, you know, parts of the tumor that were outside of, uh, you know, in other parts of my abdomen. Fortunately, they weren't. Um, did more of the staging of the tumor just to look at how hot it was. And, you know, it's, um, it's wrapped around a blood vessel about 180 degrees uh, abutment to a blood vessel, which is, you know, the conduit for metastases, right? That's the, that's the bad news. Well, I mean, it's two things. It's borderline resectable. Most, to your point, unless a surgeon is incredibly skilled in the case of like how Dr. Trudy is messing around with like a blood vessel like that. Yeah, they won't touch um, it. They won't touch it. 
they won't touch it. Right. So, um, you know, the goal of, you know, part of all of this assessment was, okay, look, what we want to do is get this tumor shrunk as much as we can to try and get it to pull away from the blood vessel. And what we're going to do, and this is, uh, you know, Dr. Tree's protocol, chemotherapy followed, if that works, followed by radiation. And if that works, followed by um, surgery and whatever variation of the Whipple procedure, because mine's in the head of the pancreas, Whipple makes sense, right? So that's the, those are the, those are the three stages. Um, Dr. Trudy very rightly said when we first went there, it's kind of like, you know, you want to like have it, you know, jump to the end game. Like, Hey, what's it going to be like when this thing's cut out of me? And he's saying like, listen, what we've got to do is get you through four rounds at, a, at, the, at the outset, we knew we were going to go longer, but yeah. let's get you through four rounds of full fear and then come back and let's talk about this. Well, um, that's what we did. I, uh, he helped me identify, uh, a leading, um, uh, medical oncologist in Hartford. And I went to him, uh, his, his name is Dr. Timothy Hong, who, yep. Um, is just tremendous and as, was a clinical researcher at one time. And to your point about having a relationship with a doctor, I think with a medical oncologist, this is a super, super important because, you know, basically they're putting in something that into your body that can kill you and they got to get the balance right. And then, um, and you have to be able to have these really open discussions with them. And, uh, Dr. Hong did a, just a tremendous job with me. I, I admire him as a clinician and I also, as a human being, he really, um, you know, watched out for my well being. I did not tolerate Fulfurinox well. I did. In fact, I, it was horrible. Um, I had, I had immediate primary reactions. Um, you know, my first, my first, uh, session with Fulfirinox, I had, um, uh, neurotoxicity where, um, and I, I think we think now is probably from the, uh, Irina Tecan. Mm-hmm. Um, but I started getting my jaw froze up. I couldn't talk. I couldn't see out of my left eye. My tongue was swollen. My blood pressure was 165 over 111. My pulse was 180. Um, it was pretty bad. It was really bad. And, uh, you know, the good people at the infusion center, you know, stopped the infusion. It resolved a bit. We did some countermeasures. You know, some of the countermeasures are to give things like atropine, which also increases blood pressure and stuff. But, you know, these are, uh, Fulfurinox is a really rough regimen, as you well know. And uh, I did not do great. So I went, so I had four rounds of it. Um, the first one, was really, really rough. And then that's part of a medical oncologist business is to figure out what happened, how we can do some of the counteracting both with steroids and with, you know, other sorts of medications, you know, um, atropine is one, Benadryl is another, there's all these kinds of things that get down from these, uh, both neurotoxicity, which I had, and then, uh, and then, uh, you know, try and, modify the dosing and the timing, the, the infusion. I went for a second round that went pretty well. Third round, I, I, I started as soon as I got started around a T can started getting neurotoxicity again, and we had to slow it down. And the fourth round, um, I was not able to get the last part of the Arena T can. I just, I am almost, I, by the way, I, one other effect was I got atrial fibrillation really bad. 
Um, I thought initially it was my chest muscle was pulsing, but I realized like my heart was flipping out for like eight hours at a time. And so while you were getting the chemo. Yeah. Yeah. Right then. And then, you know, when I went home and I, I thought like, gosh, is that, you know, and I realized later kind of stupidly (laughs) that it was my heart that was doing that. So that was causing some pretty serious, you know, I mean, those, uh, atrial fibrillation can give you a stroke, right? Yeah. So like, that's one of the things you got to really watch out for. So I took four rounds of fulfirinox and then went back for, um, you know, by this time that was uh, every two weeks. Um, I had some, also some pretty serious, um, you know, side effects. I, I couldn't get out of bed for four days I, of, of the fortnight, you know, cause you get it every two weeks yeah. I, of the fortnight, four of the days I couldn't get out of bed. I could not get it was like I was just broken into pieces. My red blood cell count was, you know, at basement levels. Obviously, my white blood cell counts and my platelets were really wrecked. Yeah. And so, you know, those things happen to all of us. So that was, you know, not unexpected. But I, I mean, I was having those effects, but also the primary effects of during the infusion. So I had that. But here's here's the, you know, here's the the, the summary of this whole thing. I get that. I feel like I'm going to die while I'm getting it. I mean, I seriously, closest I ever felt to death was my first Fulfirinox infusion. I thought, seriously, I'm going to die right here. I really thought that. I felt like it. I Everything was pointing toward that. It was pretty scary. Um, but I go back, and so I went back to Mayo for assessment, and you know, I get the PET scan CT, contrast CT, you know, all the stuff. I, I get all that, and the good news is, that my uh, CA19-9 has significantly reduced and the heat of my tumor has reduced. So this full furinox almost killed me, <laughs> but at least it doing you know, the job. It, it, it did its job. Yeah. It, it did its <laughs> job. Yeah. And then uh, I, here's an embarrassing moment. Uh, so I, I thought we're worth Dr. Trudy. And I say like, okay, you know, um, it, you know, it's really bad. And I'm thinking like, and he says, well, okay, we're going to do the other one. We're going to do the alternate. Cause he had explained all this before we ever started, but it's, uh, you know, Braxane gemcitabine. And I say to him, no, I've read all the studies and it's not as effective. And, you know, I don't really want, he, he says, listen, um, you read the, basically he said, you read the wrong study. <laughs> <laughs> That's a little humble. That's what I get for, this is what I get for being Mr. Smarty Pants. Yeah. So, um, I, I kind of was, you know, I was like, oops, okay, sorry. I was read, I read one that was um, gemcitabine versus fulfurinox as opposed to a Braxane gemcitabine versus fulfurinox. So um, anyway, I, I did, I eventually did nine rounds of gem, uh, a Braxane gemcitabine that continued to work. I actually didn't have much. I didn't have any infusion effects. I had some side effects. I had, uh, you know, a couple of days of pretty crippling bone pain and stuff from mm-hmm. it, but I was, um, I was okay. I mean, you I, lost you your know, hair. I, I think I, I'm seeing oh, yeah. the, I mean, I think, you know, it's, it's sad to say this, but I think people just assume that, right? Like, oh, you lose your hair and you know, you have neuropathy and, and all these yeah. other normal, I yeah, guess, I quote, all, unquote, I normal air quotes here. I will tell you the weirdest thing for me, it wasn't, wasn't about losing my hair that came out 
about three weeks after I started the um, Abraxane gemcitabine. Yeah. I didn't really lose my hair during full Furinox, but I, I did. It came out pretty fast. Once uh, it, it came out in clumps. Uh, but the weirdest thing for me was my eyebrows and my eyelashes fell out. <laughs> and that made me look like Yoda. Like, I swear, <laughs> it was like, so, I, you, you know, you, you know, and you know this like with people that are getting any kind of cancer treatment, there's almost kind of like a look that they yeah. have. Yeah. And I had that, like, I would go to various, I wouldn't go out very much because my, my immune system was compromised, but when I would go out, I could tell that like clerks would stare at me. Like if I was at, you know, at a coffee shop and I would, I would, and I know why, because I think it's weird to look at somebody with no eyebrows and no eyelashes. It looks strange, honestly. I mean, it looked, yeah. well, for me, this was the thing that, and by the way, I still don't have eyebrows or eyelashes. <laughs> my, my hair has started to grow back because I'm, um, now about seven. No, I, I did my last chemo on December 10th and you and I are recording on the 29th of January. Um, and so it's been a while. And so my hair has started growing back, sorta, sorta. I mean, I got like some hair, but weirdly enough, for some reason, I, my whiskers, my beard has been growing like crazy. Like I have no other hair, like on my body or anything. It all fell out. But for some reason, Your beard, my and I'm growing a rally beard, dude. So I got to do radiation for six weeks. I'm going to let this sucker grow. Like I, I, I can, it's Minnesota. So I'm going to have like this, you know, uh, I'm not going to have a Dave Letterman style one, but I'm going to let it grow <laughs> for six weeks. I'm going to let it grow for six weeks. <laughs> the beards are in. I'm sure your wife probably has uh, another, uh, you know, uh, feeling about that possibly. Yeah. But... She'll, she'll, she, I, by the time I go home, I, maybe I better shave it before yeah, I get yeah, home. Take some pictures of it. <laughs> That's so funny. Uh, one thing I, I think I remember listening to one of the podcasts that you have, which we'll mention at the end, but sure, you didn't lose, you didn't have, did you gain weight or were you, your appetite was pretty decent during this whole oh, process? Crazy. No, the, like awful, like oh, seriously awful. awful. Yeah. I gained weight, unfortunately during the, so you gained uh, weight. That's right. But then you, your appetite, like your taste buds were awful, right? Like you said, I couldn't taste anything. Yeah. I, I, I honestly, I could barely, the only smell that I could smell was almost like a oranges or citrus. I couldn't smell anything else. And my taste buds were, um, completely gone. I was almost like everything I was eating sort of tasted like, uh, like wet newspaper, yeah. Like almost like wet newspaper. It had this, and so there were various. There were some. I what my wife is a really really good cook, and um, so I, by the way, I'm not blaming her for my weight gain. I'm, <laughs> it's completely and utterly on me. And but um, I would she would make me spicier foods, and I what I could get was I couldn't taste it, but I could feel it. I could feel mm. like heat in my mouth, yeah. that sort of thing. Plus, I also had um, I had a, just a, one rotten case of thrush, thrush that yeah. it was really hard to get rid of. I mean, thrush is pretty common when you get chemotherapy. Yeah. But I, I mean, I fought that thing off and fought that thing off and took nystatin and swished that stuff around in my mouth for every time, and then it would come back, and then it would you know go away, and then it would come back again. Um, so I also, you know, complicating the fact that my taste buds were gone, I also had that dang thing in my mouth. And so, um, I eventually figured out how to sort of combat it. It worked out. 
But you still gain weight, though, which is fascinating because we've had some people that have come on and said they've gained weight uh, through the process, but most people tend to lose the weight because of malnutrition. Oh, almost almost everybody, right? Like I did not get the pancreatic cancer diet. (laughs) I would have been good for it. Would have been good for me, you know. uh, But that didn't that didn't work. I was, I you know, I guess it's some of it is the effect of steroids. I I did not have. It's steroids. Yeah. I did not have the digestive upset that I think many people have. I, I will just, just to be blunt, I never once had diarrhea for 13 rounds of chemo. Never once. Arino Tican is really well known mm-hmm. for, they call it like I run to the can, yeah. right? Like that's what people yeah. like. It's really well known for causing pretty serious diarrhea. Never. I have the digestive system of a goat, apparently. Wow. Like I don't know what the deal is, but like I somehow never got any of the digestive things. And I think I was still like, um, food stimulated while I was basically, you know, barely needing any calories. I think probably, you know, I mean, truth, probably my body when I'm just lying down for four days out of, uh, every other week, I, you know, and barely being, barely walking around, barely being mobile. My ankles and my feet were so bad with, you know, peripheral neuropathy that I was really honestly barely walking around. Like I walk up and down the stairs. We have a two story house. So yeah. come downstairs, I scrounge around, eat a chocolate bar and go back upstairs. Like, you know, that chocolate bar was probably enough calories for me for an entire day, but that was just like boredom. Plus, you know, I thought I was getting exercise. It was ridiculous. I probably needed 1200 calories a day and I'm going to make a guess that I was eating double that, you know, it's ridiculous. Fascinating. So, um, and you know, I, I, I don't blame anything other than my own self. If I had been more conscious of, you know, what I was doing, I wouldn't have done it that way, but I did. And well, fortunately now, um, you know, I've been able to lose a pretty decent chunk of it since I've been on chemo. So. So you get off the chemo in December and then now you're at Mayo. We're recording this from afar with you. Yep. You've been now three weeks into the radiation treatment. Yep. Today, today will be my 11th of 25. Um, so yeah, just about three weeks. And, um, so it's 25, 25 sessions. And, um, so 11, I'll be 11 in at 1130 today. I'll be there. Wow. <laughs> and then the goal is at the end of the sessions to do another reassessment, make sure everything is on track and then schedule surgery. That's correct. Yeah. I, I, I understand. And I just got, I got to get a little bit more information on this, that, you know, what you got to do is they, they, they send you home and recover a bit because, mm-hmm. um, you know, you got to make sure that you're fit for surgery. It's a, as you said, it's a rough surgery. Yeah. And so, um, I think about four to six weeks is kind of a, a sweet spot for, you know, after radiation before surgery is scheduled or done, you know? So that's the, I think that's about right. But to your point, I think that at the end of the radiation, which for me is that, you know, middle to end of February, um, then I'll go through that battery of tests again. I'm sure I'll get another PET scan, you know, yeah. a real high, you know, uh, contrast CT, which I swear every time, no matter how many times they're going to tell me this, every time they tell me that that thing's going to burn down there, I, I still am shocked every time it happens. So. <laughs> yeah. 
<laughs> for those listening at home, the, the dye agents that they have to use, um, and you get that metallic taste too as well, I think, in your mouth. Yes, yep. yes, yes. Um, yep. they, they give you the sensation of urinating while you're in the machine. Um, and you also get the metallic taste in your mouth um, because they use contrast agents in the machine uh, while you're doing the testing so that it lights up um, the tumor and anything that's not supposed to be there. It um, does, but it does feel like you're just wetting it, your pants. Yeah. Like you're just laying there and that, like that heat goes from about your thorax and then goes and washes down into all the parts that shouldn't be that hot. Correct. So like, it is like, it is really hot too. Like I am amazed. And and I know, I mean, I've had it, you know, eight, 10 times. I I know exactly what's going to happen. I'm still surprised. Yeah. Still and I think I think the other thing too, Frank, those rooms are so cold, right? Like the the oh, they are. you know, the radiology rooms have to yeah. be so cold cuz the machines give off so much heat. So you walk into a room that's, you know, thir- you know, it's not freezing, but it's like 40 degrees. And yeah. you know, I, I love uh you know, I've had some testing done and and have had the the PC protocol, and uh, so yep. I, I know you know the experience. But yeah, you're, you're freezing. They, you know, even if you have three blankets on you and you have socks and you know you've got a Johnny coat and maybe your boxer shorts or you know undergarments, sure. it, it still doesn't matter. It's still very cold in there, and then you get that just massive feeling of like, yeah, you're urinating because it's, it's just so hot. Yeah, it's crazy. Here I am wetting my pants for yeah. 10 minutes yeah. while this thing goes on, while I'm playing in this machine thinking like, man alive. I, I, you know, there, there's there's a loss of dignity when you get yeah. sick anyway, right? But there's yeah. also sort of giving over to it. Kind Correct. Of like, you know, I stand up when I give, get radiation now, it's like all of us, all those 1130 people, you know, all kind of sort of know each other yeah. or like everybody just sort of standing there and every kind of cancer under the sun, people are getting radiation for it. It's kind of like at some point, no one even cares anymore. Like just, and I'm not saying that there's, but you know, we're all sort of standing around in hospital gowns, kind of, you know, holding them back. <laughs> well, it's like a brotherhood it's kind of or sisterhood. Everyone's it is. going, it is. everyone's going to the same door and everyone's going to have the same experience. So regardless of your ethnic background, your wealth or whatever, it doesn't matter, right? Like you're doesn't all, matter. we're all wearing the same coat and we're all having the same type of procedures happening. I got you a couple. You make a good point. There's, a, there's a, there's, there's quite a variety of people from all over the world here. And it's even, I'm happy. I'm lucky to be able to stay at Hope Lodge now, which is uh, the American Cancer Society. Um, has uh, a place for people that are getting particularly radiation. Most of us here are getting radiation where we're here for a long period of time and uh, they provide this free of charge. So it's a very nice and it's a, it's just a a really a tremendous resource and a, a, you know, real economic help, um, you know, um, instead of staying in a hotel. So really, really absolutely wonderful. I've always said the American Cancer Society's got some great programs. They get beat up a lot for their size, and you know when you're raising that much money and you're sure, that large. Sure. But they've got some wonderful programs, and that's just one of them. They've got a right. Well, I am program. I am one of the beneficiaries of it here, and I think there's 60 other people here yeah, at the time. It's ph- so phenomenal, that's, that's really phenomenal, really great. I got a couple questions here for you, Frank, and I know you've got an appointment, so we want to get you on your way. Sure. Yeah, I'm sorry to be so talkative. No, no, this has that. been this has been awesome, and and for our audience listening at home, I I you know I always say this, especially when we have the survivors on that talk about their experience. It's so vital to hear what you've gone through because there could be someone listening on the other line that is beginning this journey, and this is powerful stuff that they need to take and digest and and hopefully use 
to their benefit going through their journey. But one I of like the things, very much. one of the things that I, I wanted to ask here is you've had this, and again, I've been taking notes, but this mentality of yours that you've had through this journey, and I've got to ask the question because I've asked it before. This isn't something that happened overnight. It wasn't something that happened back in February 19. Where does that come from, Frank? Where does the mentality come yeah, from? Yeah, because, you know, I mean, yeah. the, the knowledge and, and, you know, you've got kind of a, a really cool candor, if I have to say here, um, oh, you know, which is something that I think, you know, we've seen in, in other people where they, they have this ability to identify the issue at hand. It's pancreatic cancer. Um, and put levity to it so that, you know, it's not as serious. It's not so dark and grim, but, you know, from listening to your podcast and, you know, hearing you speak, you know, you use a lot of analogies and a lot of really cool, eloquent stories, which I wouldn't say dial down the seriousness, but just give it a different tone, which I think gives at least me listening, the opportunity to say, wow, man, Frank's really, you know, he's got a, this, this mentality about this disease is not so so grim. It's not so, I wouldn't say serious because it is serious, but it's just in a different light. And that's something that- well, th Thank you. I, I, I Thank you for saying this, by the way. I, um, I have, from the beginning, I, I have not had, you know, and I, listen, everybody processes information differently. I have not been one of those F cancer guys. Yep. Um, I, in fact, I tell people to stay away from me if they say that kind of <laughs> stuff. I haven't been angry about this. I sort of have been, um, I've, I've taken two views of it. One is the kind of the clinical, I am going to get the very best help that I can get, right? I'm going to use the best science that I can to do this. And then the other part is, um, you know, I'm hopeful, but not like crazy optimistic. Oh, you know, this is just going to go away and like miracle. I don't, I never thought that. I was always kind of thought like, I'm just going to deal with the process as it came. I'm just going to, you know, I know I got to take this chemo, it's going to hurt. It's going to be kind of bad, but I'll get over it. And then, you know, uh, and I'll do this radiation and, you know, that'll hurt and I'll get over it and then I'll do the surgery. And I, I sort of thought like, I'll just take it as it comes. And, um, you know, I've been a pretty, I, I wake up every day happy. Um, I've always done that my whole life. And uh, I, I still, I don't mean to sound Pollyannish, by the way. It's just true. Like I, I am generally pretty outgoing. I'm pretty, you know, people can ask me anything. Um, and that's always been sort of the case my whole life. So it hasn't just been about cancer, just, but, yeah. you know, people want to ask me something, I'll answer you. You know, if you're asking me, if you're trying to cancer rubberneck me, you're not getting an answer from me. <laughs> if you're just, you know, want to give me a drive by, forget it. Yeah. I'm not interested. But if you legitimately have a question and you really want to, you know, if you're a, by the way, if you're an audience member of, you know, of Purple Podcast Guys, obviously any question you, you can ask is that's not rubbernecking. Rubberneckers are people who, you know, think the story is sexy because, you know, somebody who's got a cancer that could kill them, right? Yeah. Like anything that's like, you know, oh, you got this cancer that is like, you know, one of the worst things you could ever have, um, you know. Tell me because I want to go tell a bunch of other people. No, 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 no. So I, I've, I've, um, I felt upbeat. I've kind of, uh, I, I've always kind of been this way, pretty outgoing. And, you know, I tried to be that way at the infusion center 
you know, people used to like to rub my head because it, like, I had like Yoda hair <laughs> yeah. and like, but I was one of the guys who made it right. Like I was yeah. the guy who went and got a lot of chemo. And by the way, my tumor went down. I also saw other people who basically got the same thing that I got, who unluckily didn't go that way. Right. Like, so, you know, I, I consider really good science, a little bit of luck and, you know, a decent attitude about this in which I'm not going to, I wasn't supposed to make it to December. So the idea that like somehow here it is, you and I talking at the end of January, like I'm playing with house money, man. Like I, I got this thing. Like, (laughs) however it worked out, I'm still, you know, still standing, walking around, feeling pretty good. So um, I'm going to keep doing that as long as I can. So awesome. Uh, It's so powerful what you just said. And I think, uh, you know, for me hearing that, I appreciate the honesty and hopefully our audience as well, because it's so powerful to hear you say that, Frank, that, uh, you know, you've got house money and you're going to keep living the way you're living. And it sounds if I could not necessarily put words in your mouth, but you've lived your life this whole way. And yeah, this diagnosis hasn't really changed much on the higher level service. Yeah. Life is different, but you're still living your life the way Frank Roche lives his life. Thank you. Yeah. I I feel that way. I mean, yeah, I got this thing and you know, any of us who have had, you know, anything like this, we all know that it, it, you know, there's a little seed in your, your mind, but I still feel like I'm the same guy I was before. So that, that helps. I feel like that's pretty helpful to me. Powerful stuff. I got a couple of questions here for you left, and then we're going to let sure. you go. The okay. podcast, and I know we talked about it before we were recording, but let's be honest here. I know you said you've done some podcasting before. You've got a, a postcard collecting podcast, which I want to ask, why postcards? What got you into collecting um, I, postcards? Sure. I've just been a, I've been a postcard collector for ages and uh, I started out writing postcards to my grandmother when I was a kid and have written postcards and um, postcards are something that people actually keep. So I've, yeah. I've tried to keep the, you know, the art of handwriting alive. And uh, so I send out about 13 or 1400 postcards a year and get twice that many back. And so um, I just keep up correspondence with people. And, and then I, of course, collected, I mean, there's, there's collecting as well, which I do, but, um, I just made a podcast about that and it's, you know, talked to lots and lots of people about their collections and how they've done it and why they've done it. So I think what you just said is really special though, because in this day and age where, you know, texting, we, you and I have been communicating on Instagram messaging, Sure, you know, it takes a little bit of effort and energy to handwrite something nowadays, right? But to send that many postcards is pretty special, you know, to, to, to receive something that someone wrote and took the time to write it. Um, that's pretty powerful. You said exactly what I would say as well. I, yeah. I think that there is that, uh, that idea of the connection and somebody took a minute out of their day to um, acknowledge me. And that's, isn't that what we all want in the world? Yeah. At the end of the day, a little bit of acknowledgement that we are here. Goes a long way. So you have this idea then, you've done podcasting to tell your story. So was, did you know initially like, Hey, like I'm going to do this podcast on, you know, the adventures of pan cam man, or what was the tipping point? I guess I would say to say, you know, what, I'm going to do this. Well, I, I was a journalist, uh, you know, a, a chunk of my life. And so I've always been a person who's kind of paid attention to, you know, small details of, you know, whether that would be, uh, you know, my own personal one or watching other stories unfold. And I initially thought that I was going to make a podcast 
that was going to be contemporaneous to my treatment. So I mm-hmm. thought initially, I thought like, I should just, I should just record this. This will be, you know, something that I want to do. But honestly, I got too sick. And during my, a large part of my chemotherapy, I didn't, uh, I didn't record. I didn't, I was, my creativity was off. I had a bunch of chemo fog. Yeah. I just didn't feel that the the caliber of the kind of show that I was going to be able to make was going to be good enough. And so, um, and there's another complicating factor. I did not tell people that I had pancreatic cancer until I was pretty much through my chemotherapy. As a matter of fact, I only made a public announcement about it on World Pancreatic Cancer Day, which is in November. Mm -hmm. So I had basically, I had told friends and I had told really close people to me, but under lock and seal telling them, I don't want them telling anybody else. Cause like, I didn't want to be the sob story. I didn't want to be the guy who, you know, I just wanted to be like regular guy. And I, that was, I don't know whether, whether I was right or wrong about this. I just was, that was my own deal. I just wanted to tell people that I knew, but I didn't want to make it like a big deal. Well, of course, as soon as I made it, you know, it became a bigger deal because, you know, I've got whatever, a lot of people to follow me on LinkedIn, a lot of people to follow me on Instagram, uh, you know, Twitter, blah, 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 this kind of. So um, I didn't ever say it publicly. So then I decided to make a podcast um, that was just to your point, just uh, call it the adventures of Pan Can Man, just because I wanted it to be like, you know, superhero like, but I'm not the superhero. The superhero are all the people that take care of me. And so it was more like adventures and I was just, um, just try and document, um, what's, what's happened. Like what's, yeah. what's going on? What was in my head? How I made this, you know, you and I talked about this, how I made the decision to get the treatment that I got, um, what it was like, you know, you and I talked a little bit about, it. I just got, I get into some pretty excruciating detail, yeah. um, with, with some of the shows about what happened. And, you know, I, I always kind of thought like, well, if I told this, and a few people or one person could hear it and go like, oh, well, maybe I can know that this could happen or I could ask a question. And that's worked out pretty well so far. So I just going to continue to make those kind of shows about um, I just made one about radiation just the other day called The Zappening. And, you know, so it's just it's just it's just been a, um, a, a labor of love and a way to. There's, there's two parts that I, I'm communicating with a, you know, a larger audience of people that can listen that are just don't know me, but also it's given me a chance to tell my story to people who are really close to me, who I probably left out some details and they can now hear this and they can hear some of the details too, where I don't have to look them in the eye and sort of tell them all this stuff about my tongue swelling up and you know, my eye I can't see out of my left eye. No. <laughs> so Yeah. <laughs> Well, I, I got to say, I mean, I've been listening to the podcast, your podcast, since I, I rolled out because I saw it pop up in, in one of my feeds and it's been great because, and there has been that gap, which I kind of, kind of thought that was the reason, Frank, and I appreciate you being honest there and saying, you know, during that chemo fog time, but it's been great for me as a listener and as a stranger to hear about the struggles that you've had. And also the wins because you've had wins. And, and, and I think that's something that I've got to note here in your journey. Like you've talked pretty openly about a lot of these defeats, but then there's these wins that happen in there. And, and the wins in my mind 
listening to the podcast clearly are, is the path you're on, but then also the connections that you've made with your wife and bringing kind of the human side to it in your podcast about talking about your kids. And I know you haven't, I don't think we've, you've gotten to it, but there's been a, a there was a road trip with your son. Right. Was that was flight. coming up. Right. I, I, yeah, yeah. Yeah. Exactly. You know, so it's just that human side of it that makes this real and I get to know Frank's journey on the podcast. So it's it's done very well. So for our listeners at home that are listening, where's the best place to find that? I know you've got a website set up. Um I, I know yeah, you're all on those things, right, exactly. It's I think it's easy. If if people just Google the adventures of Pan Can Man, they can find it in any different ways. There's there's a website called pancanman.com. Um they can find the podcast in any place where you find your podcast. So the awesome. adventures of pan can man and they'll find it there. Awesome. Awesome. Last question for you. And this is not a, uh, somewhat of a loaded question and there's no right or wrong answer to this. What's your definition of pancreatic cancer, Frank? Wow. Now that one, I wasn't prepared for my definition. Huh? Um, I, 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 I actually have, I, I don't, I, I often, worry that I come off as a little too glib about this. I always, um, you know, when my wife would go out to the kitchen when I was sleeping in the living room and she'd say, do you want anything while I'm out here? And I go, I'd always say, yes, I want a new pancreas. And, you know, I was always kind of one of these sort of things. It's like, you know, that I, I would, I would sort of joke with people and go like, I got the king of cancers. I got like the one that like, when you say you have pancreatic cancer, it makes people gasp. Like there's no other one. Like, my, my primary care physician, when she realized that I had pancreatic cancer, hugged me. Like, there's that kind of thing. And so, like, in, the, in a weird sort of definition, I think it has this, um, this connotation of instant death. And for me, I'm sort of thinking, like, well, you know, what's what Dr. Trudy says? We're going to slay the dragon. If we can do that, then uh, I'm pretty good. And I don't know that that's a, a purely a definition, but it's an observation of other people's reactions and, you know, my own, I must tell you, I gasped when I first heard those words, like, oh, I thought that meant, like, I'm just checking out here. Like, that's it. I better start writing my, you know, last will and testament. And then as a matter of fact, um, here I am. If we're getting onto a year here. <laughs> it's powerful stuff, Frank. Well, Frank, I want to thank you for being a guest on the Project Purple podcast and sharing your journey with our audience. And I've taken a lot of notes here. And, and I think there's two things that I'm going to leave the audience here with is you being your biggest advocate for you and doing your research and having the, the proper knowledge. But then something that I just wrote down about 10 minutes ago, which really hit me is, Frank, you're changing the narrative of PC. And it's, it's your narrative and it's your journey. So I appreciate you sharing your journey with our audience and keep doing what you're doing. Keep staying, uh, you know, keep, keep being cranky Frankie as, uh, as for the listeners who listen to your <laughs> podcast, uh, that's a nickname you've given yourself. Um, and, and just keep being you. Dino, you know, thank you so much for having me on the Project Purple podcast. I really admire what you do. I've, I've admired the, you know, the storytelling, the, the technical aspects, and it is a really great uh, resource for us. And thank you so much for creating the community that you have. Thank you, Frank. It's been a pleasure and an honor. And as we say in the Project Purple podcast, that's a wrap of another episode of the Project Purple podcast. Beep.